0: children can be dismissed to Children's Church. The rest of you want to get out the uh, sermon outline. This is Knowing the Work of Christ. Our passage today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We've finally gotten out of chapter 8 and uh, have raced to chapter 9. So, here, God's Word, John 9, 1 through 25. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? He then anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be people who see, who understand what you're trying to teach us this morning. We ask that you would do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we look at the text this morning... One of the first things we see is that Jesus has again declared himself to be the light of the world. So I thought about that, I wondered what kind of light, I mean a spotlight is one kind of light, there's four big spotlights up there hanging over your heads, but just praying they don't fall, because they're big and heavy and powerful. And spotlights can be powerful, and they can be used to locate objects and point things out to us from a great distance away. But that's all a spotlight can do. Spotlights aren't very useful when it comes to changing things. But there's another kind of light for that, a laser beam. sent out an email yesterday. People had laser pointers. I got three of them here. Um, These are cool. I wanted to shine them at the Space Cowboy on the stage. <laughs> so you can shine them all over. See that red dot? I mean, you could just play with this for hours. <laughs> Take it home and torture the dog. See him running around, or little kids. Very tempting. But this is a very small laser. There are very powerful lasers. They too can be used to locate objects and point things out to us. You can do that. Uh, Somebody said that one of these lasers, I can shine almost all the way across town. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, But powerful lasers not only can point things out from far away, they not only can locate objects, but a true laser is capable of changing what it's focused on. Shine the spotlight on steel, even if it's powerful spotlight, it can only make it warm. But aim a laser beam at steel and it will burn through it no matter moments. See, the difference is concentration. The light particles in the laser beam are so highly concentrated that a laser makes a powerful impact on whatever it's aimed at. And it's one reason that lasers are being used so effectively today in a modern surgical procedures. We often hear about laser eye surgery. I'm sure several of you have had that done. And Jesus' light has the impact of a laser. His light locates people, points out the truth to them, and changes whomever it's focused on. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied five times that the Messiah would give sight to the blind. Once in Exodus, once in Psalms, and three times in Isaiah. But it never happened in the Old Testament. And then we get to the Gospels, and we see that Jesus gives sight to the blind. And he does it five times. One of those times is right here in John 9. Jesus has come with his light to do eye surgery and to do heart surgery. Verse 1 says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And we start with this meeting of the master and the blind man. Our passage starts with learning something about the meaning of suffering. That's the first blank there in your outline, the meaning of suffering. There's a a bunch of them today. I kind of went nuts. But um, the meaning of suffering, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And once again, we see that Jesus is walking along, and he notices those in need. He spots this man who's been blind from birth. I imagine he was sitting by the side of the road begging. I mean, What else is there for a blind man to do? We know he was a beggar. It tells us that later in the text. You know, in first century Jerusalem, there, there wasn't much else for a blind man to do. It is pretty clear this man is somewhat of a hopeless situation. And therefore, in verse 2, when the disciples see the blind man, they decide to ask Jesus a question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They assumed that specific suffering was always the result of some specific sin. Same mistake Job's friends made. They thought if there's great suffering, there had to be great sin. Now it is possible for some specific suffering to be the result of some specific sin. But that's pretty rare in the Bible. It's clear in the New Testament, the righteous should expect to suffer as much as the unrighteous. And at this point in the story, we don't know very much about this man, if he was a righteous man or not. Now, that's not to say that there's no connection between suffering and sin. There is a connection between sin in general and suffering in general. That wasn't the case, uh, wasn't true in the case of this blind man, but it's often true. Not all suffering is caused by sin, but all sin causes suffering. It's important that you understand the distinction there because there's some specific suffering. doesn't mean it's caused by a specific sin. You know, if you do X, then you'll suffer Y. That's not the case. But sin in general screws up our lives. That's true. It causes suffering for not just the person who sins, but for all those around him. But Jesus makes it clear here in verse 3 that this man's specific suffering, being blind was not the result of some specific sin on either his part or his parents. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, God can display his glory in the midst of our tragedies. To a large degree, that's the meaning of our suffering. God is glorified through the righteous suffering of his saints. I'll say that again. God is glorified through the righteous suffering of his saints. Suffering is part of God's purpose for our lives. We would prefer it not be. And through suffering, we're made dependent on Christ. Our faith is built up. We're made mature as Christians, James 1 Uh, It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And our response to our suffering draws others to Christ because they want to know how we're able to handle our suffering when they can't. I mean, it's very easy for us to thank God for our blessings, and we often do that. And yet far too often we question God for our afflictions. The truth be told, usually our afflictions bring us closer to God than our blessings do. The Apostle Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus has let the disciples know that God is at work even in this seemingly hopeless situation. And he goes on to say that not only is the work of God being displayed in his life, but we must do the work of God as well. That's part of the mission of the sender. Verse 4, the mission of the sender. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says very bluntly here, we must work the works of him who sent me. Very clear, it's God's will for us to work the works of God. First, we can uh, only work the works of God through Christ as he lives in us and strengthens us and guides us. Only then are we able to display the work that he's done in our lives. During the Sunday school class this morning, we heard from two officer candidates. What did they talk about? What has God done in my life? We're going to hear two more next week. I'll let you in on a little secret. They're going to talk about what God's done in their life. That's what we ask him to talk about. Second, we can only work the works of uh, God through Christ as his spirit enables us and empowers us. Only then are we able to do his work in the lives of others. So it's not just what goes on in my life, but also how is God's Holy Spirit enabling me to to work the works of God in the lives of other people? And third, we can only work the works of God through Christ as his word enlightens us and gives us direction. Only then are we able to follow his will in our everyday life. Now Jesus is not saying it would be a really good idea for us to do some work for God. He's saying it is necessary that we work the works of God. The fact that we do nothing to merit our own salvation should not Uh, lead us to reason that it doesn't matter what we do with our lives. Salvation by uh, faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone is not an invitation to spiritual laziness. But it should impel us, it should compel us to do the best we can, as faithfully as we can, when it comes to living out day to day what our salvation through Christ really means to us. Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. He's saying, I am the light of the world. For you to see, I am the one who is shining through the darkness. And to prove the point, he goes on to do a miracle. But it's not just a miracle. It's a sign. It's a parable acted out. said often parables are miracles in spoken form and miracles are uh, parables that are acted out. And it's the work of God the Father, who is the sender, carried out through God the Son, who is the one sent, to shed light on those who live in darkness. And Jesus is about to give a powerful public demonstration of being the light. And so we see the miracle of the Savior, verse 6, the miracle of the Savior. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back see. Jesus makes some mud, and he puts it on the blind man's eyes. And then he tells him, verse 7, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Notice three things right there. First there is a command. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then there's obedience. So he went and washed. There's no guarantee of healing. Jesus hasn't promised him anything yet. The only thing he's been told is, I am the light. But still, the man obeys. And finally, there's the blessing he came back seeing. And I think this man is a lot like us. We're all spiritually blind from birth. We have the command of Christ as well to go and wash to be clean. Only Christ has the power and the authority to change us. And we need to exercise faith just as the blind man did and act in obedience to Christ's commands. This man did what Christ told him to do. It was very simple. Go wash, so he went and washed. We need to do what Christ tells us to do. Not for any guarantee of healing Not because Jesus promises to fix all our problems or remove all our burdens or to make our life more comfortable. But because of Jesus' promise that he is the light of the world. And then blessing will will result. We'll be able to go home seeing. Seeing not just with our eyes, but understanding with our hearts. And when that happens, the words of John Newton take on even greater meaning for us rather than being the most beloved song out there, you then hear the words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I'm sure John Newton wrote those words for himself. Well, we don't sing those for John Newton. We don't sing those about John Newton. We sing those words about ourselves. See, this blind man could only be healed by a miracle. Without a miracle, his situation was hopeless. Without a miracle, our situation would be just as hopeless. Like the blind man who lived in darkness physically, those of us who, spiritually, who are spiritually blind live in darkness spiritually. There's no need today for us to seek out signs and wonders or great miracles because the greatest miracle that ever could be done for us has already been done for us. The Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins, for your sins, and for my sins. And then he conquered sin and death through his resurrection from the dead. And because of his resurrection, our situation has been turned around from one of hopelessness to one of hopefulness. And through Christ, our lives have been changed just as the blind man's was. Think about what his life must have been like. Put yourself in his shoes, so to speak. Close your eyes for a moment. So everybody close your eyes and think about what it would have been like. Darkness was all he'd ever known. He could not conceive of blue, green, red, or orange. A million glories of nature were hidden from him, the green of spring grass, the magic of sunset. Perhaps there had been a time when, as a child, he reached up, felt the softness of his mother's face, possibly a hot tear upon her cheek. But he didn't know what she looked like. He was always dependent either on a friendly arm or an uncertain cane. Keep your eyes closed. And as he begged outside the temple, he hears someone cry, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then there's silence. He hears a man kneel close to him and spit upon the ground. And he feels gentle hands apply damp clay to his eyes. And he hears the words, go, wash, in the pool of Siloam. How do you feel? How do you think he felt? A bit foolish? Maybe. Even though he's blind, he must have had some idea he was creating a scene as he made his way to the pool with his eyes covered with mud. But his heart began to pound with the swelling possibility he might receive his sight. What if this really happened? works and then he washed in the pool of Siloam open your eyes and light poured into him he could see what's the first thing he saw I'm guessing it doesn't tell us but I think it would have been his own reflection in the water than the water, the sky, the trees, faces. How would he react? Would he say, well, I've got to get back to my begging post. You know, it's a competitive business. I don't think so. I mean, I think it's far more likely as he began to see, he looked intently at the faces of the voices that he had known. And he began to shout, I can see. I can see. You know, I mean, probably uh started to go home very slowly they say in a few cases where they've been able to restore sight to people uh they have no depth perception so it's actually very difficult to walk or run and to move because the concept of depth is new um you know they're not quite sure how far to reach out to grab stuff and step and they often fall down a lot um but he's making his way home. The context tells us he returned to his neighborhood because you hear from his neighbors. Um, but I can imagine, no matter what, at some point he's just trying to hurry to get home. And you just imagine you know, him getting home and bursting in the house. Mom, no cane. I can see. What an incredible miracle. The whole neighborhood's in an uproar. Everybody comes out to see what's happened. And he goes home, and we see the interaction between this multitude and the blind man. It's almost like reporters at a presidential press conference. They begin to ply him with question, one on top of the other. Why? Because the people are surprised. Verse 8, the people are surprised. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. Seeing made enough of a difference that some of his neighbors didn't recognize him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then, how are your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. His neighbors, the people who know him, the folks who are familiar with him and his situation, they notice an immediate difference in this man. He now has the confidence of sight. He not only knows where he's going, now he can actually see where he's going. No longer is he walking with hesitation. No longer is he stumbling in the dark. No longer does he fear the unknown as he moves along. Now he can see. He can boldly move ahead. He has a transformed life and people want to know what happened the lesson here is clear when Christ changes our life people should notice a difference we're no longer spiritually blind now we're able to understand to spiritually see and therefore we too can walk with the confidence of sight there's no need for the man or a woman who has Christ living in them to walk with hesitation. Spiritually seeing, we walk forward in faith, in God's will, doing God's work, neither stumbling in the darkness or fearing the unknown. And as Christians, our lives ought to be so transformed that people want to know what's happened to us. The real questions become, is Christ changing my life? Is there a difference? Can anyone tell? But this man has a much tougher audience to face than his neighbors. They take him to the Pharisees, only to find out the Pharisees are skeptical. The Pharisees are skeptical. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Jesus broke about four rules in doing that. He spit on the ground in the dirt. He made the clay. made the mud. He anointed the man's eyes and he told them to go wash. Every one of those is breaking a rule. Think Jesus could have just said, see, and he could have seen? You think Jesus was going around afterwards saying, oh man, I broke all these rules. I don't think so. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Verse 15, So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to him, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. See, for this man, unfortunately, inconveniently, not by any choice on his part, he was healed on the Sabbath. And once again, the Pharisees are upset that their traditions have been ignored. Jesus has committed the absolutely vile act of kneading the clay when he made the mud to put on the man's eyes. Their anger, at least initially, is not so much directed towards what happened, the man's eyes being opened, but how it happened. Jesus had made mud to use that qualified under their restrictions his work. Everyone knows that you weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. No problem with opening his eyes, but he should have done it the next day. The Pharisees' problem is in misunderstanding the Sabbath. They had buried it under mounds of stifling restrictions. Instead of the Sabbath being a blessing, they made it a burden. So instead of being amazed and thankful over what had happened, they're suspicious. They begin to question the young man, trying to prove to themselves that some great error had been made. The man remains truthful. He relays the story to them. Just as it happens, he refuses to admit any error, even under pressure from prominent people. He tells them that Jesus made it. He said it. I did it. Now I see. End of story. And now it's the Pharisees' turn to be blind. They regularly fail to see, to understand Jesus' miracles and the message behind him. They remind me of a man, Sinclair, Lewis wrote about in his book Main Street. I don't know if you had to read that in high school. Why don't you make your students read Main Street? It's just one of those classics. I didn't like it because I had to read it. But there's a line it I'll never forget. The man in this book uh, always talked about the Bible. But Sinclair Lewis wrote this one line. He knows everything about the book except how to read it. And that just stuck with me. There are so many people that we can say that, particularly about the scriptures. They know everything about Christianity, everything about theology, everything about the Bible, except how to read it. And I think that was to some degree true for some of these people that were questioning this man. Because they kind of turn on him. Look at verse 17. What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? This man's opinion of Jesus hasn't been a subject up to now. You need to understand, if you allow Jesus to work in your life, if he's opening your eyes to see and understand his will, then you'll also be changed, and then you too will have to answer the questions about being different. What do you say about him? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Do you really know him? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Or is he merely some distant deity who has no direct effect? on your life. I mean, this man didn't know much about Christ, but it's clear from what little he did know that Jesus was a man who had been sent by God. He said he is a prophet. And I don't think he's trying to, uh, or particularly concerned with categorizing Jesus or putting him in some theological camp. He's just telling him what he knows. This is my best guess. He didn't care much for the Theological traditions after God has so clearly changed his life. But the Pharisees don't want to believe him, so they send for his parents. Verse 18, the parents are scared. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Because of that we think this is a younger man. Probably, you know, late teens, Uh, Depending, because of coming of age, would be different then than it is now. Probably be, uh, you know, high school or college student, age-wise. you think about the, the the Pharisees have dragged this man's parents in front of them, and they essentially proceed to interrogate him: "Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How does he now see?" You know, when you're trying to avoid the truth like the Pharisees where it's tempting to attack the credibility of those who are telling the truth. When rational argument fails, you turn to ridicule, intimidation, and pressure. You don't believe it? We've got a political campaign coming up. You're going to see plenty of it. It's common knowledge what the correct answers, what the expected answers were supposed to be. To say anything other than what the Pharisees wanted to hear would mean being branded as an outcast. So the parents are somewhat paralyzed by fear. They allow their joy at their son's healing to be swallowed up by their fear of the Pharisees. Their testimony is compromised by their fear of the consequences. They claim they just don't know how this has happened, and they may not have. They tell the Pharisees, you'll have to talk to our son. So the Pharisees are forced to turn on the man once again. And once again, he stands by his story. He simply relays the truth of how his life was changed. And that's ultimately the message of the blind man. I once was blind, now I see. And it appears that the Pharisees couldn't accept the clear and simple answer. Simple truth was too much. They wanted the complex and the profound, although I think this is actually quite profound. However, we see the truth remains the same. Verses 24 and 25. The truth remains the same. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. The Pharisees just wouldn't let allow themselves to believe this man could be healed that easily. They were letting the man know they didn't trust Christ. And if he trusted Christ, they weren't going to trust him either. It's exactly what the world says today to those who put their trust in Christ. We won't trust Christ, therefore we won't trust Christians. And they don't. But the man stands firm. Verse 25. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The truth remains the same. It never changes. Two plus two still equals four, whether you're skeptical or not. George Bush is still the president, whether that scares you or not. And Jesus Christ changes lives whether that surprises you or not. The man faces the Pharisees and says, in essence, look, I don't know all the Bible, I don't know all the doctrine, I don't know all the answers to all the hard questions. But one thing I know, Jesus changed my life. The man's eyes are opening wider. He's seeing more and more clearly while the eyes of his accusers are becoming clouded over with this blinding theological mist. That's what happens when the light of the world shines. Some of the blind see, and some of the seeing are blinded. Truth does not need updating. There's a story of a man who came to visit his old friend, a retired music teacher. He asked him, What's the good news today? The old teacher was silent. He stood up and walked across the room and picked up a tuning fork. And he struck it. The note sounded throughout the room. He said, that is A. It is A today. It was A 5,000 years ago, and it will be A 10,000 years from now. The soprano upstairs sings off-key. The tenor across the hall flats on his high notes, and the piano downstairs is woefully out of tune. But he said, that is A, my friends. That's the good news for today. The truth remains the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus Christ still comes to give sight to the blind. He is still the light of the world, and he still changes lives. John Newton said, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. And with John Newton, my prayer for each one of us as we can sing his words with truth and meaning, I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the good news for today. We need to pray.